Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, all right, Holy all right. Shit, is that ever timely? Yes, it is. Well, seriously, Were timely. You- that you just get on screen right now? No, I was. Or, oh, you mean timely? Else. The message. The message is timely. Yeah, yeah, no, the messaging is. was timely. Yeah. One hundred percent. We've been running 100%. that same ad for like a year, and you know, what if no inflation cares. takes hold? What if you know, <laughs> U.S. markets start to underperform? And how about um, the dollar collapse part? Dollar oh, yeah. collapse. All, <laughs> all part and parcel, man. All part and parcel. I What's everybody drinking today? It. I heard dollar collapse and I started thinking to myself, okay, I gotta, I gotta start prepping and see what, what curveballs these guys are going to throw me. <laughs> we'll see. Go on guys. That's right. First of all, That's happy so new good. year. This is our first podcast in the year. We've been slacking gents. Yeah. Too many quarantines. Cheers. You know, my, Adam, you have to tell us your story, but I'm doing a little kombucha in the new year, trying to cleanse my system. A little local, wow. local raised yeah. kombucha. Nice. A little shout out to, uh, Sucha Conscious Living of K-Man. All right. You're so, right. you're so, uh, wow, dude. You're, you're so, um, in balance. I know. I know. <laughs> and, I'm going to uh, crush it today. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and just before <laughs> we start, remember that, that now that this is financial advice, as we welcome, uh, Jeff Winnegar to the stage of the Resolve Riffs. Oh, is that um, Jeff? I podcast. thought it was Steve Jobs. <laughs> oh my god no with the black turtleneck think saturday night live or what yeah. saturday you know live. what you know what you guys <laughs> it's it's, it's also silly you know we're all uh, you know i'm operating out of the house i'm usually putting on the, a blazer as if i'm making like i'm out in society so uh, you get a turtleneck today that's what yep. you get 
<laughs> I like That's it. Good. I like it. I, I can't wait to see the boxers that are underneath. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah isn't that the truth? That's the post show. You guys don't get to see that. <laughs> the, post show. the green room. So, yeah. It's the green room uh, cut. Yeah. So, Adam, your family's finally out of quarantine today? Is yeah, that the plan? Yeah, we spent almost a month trying to see family in Florida, uh, traveling from Cayman to Florida, trying to see them, having various family members either testing positive in Canada and being unable to travel or testing positive in Florida and then not being able to get together with family because of that and then spending two weeks isolating in various Airbnbs in Florida waiting to get back to Cayman when all of us were would be confidently negative uh, for testing to get on a flight. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a, a busted vacation. I'm sure there's lots of stories like that over the, the holiday season. So, um, not from your you know, not from your group. The rest of us to, made the right decision and not leave the island. Yeah, I don't know what the hell you were thinking. That's true. Yeah, I was close. I was close really to going out to Canada and and being stuck there forever. Mm-hmm. Came out unscathed. All well, right. it's not like we have much to talk about, too. Like, markets no. are pretty much normal. <laughs> Everything's rolling yeah. along. I mean, it's yeah. a pretty typical year. Several commodity indexes up 100%, 150%. Yes, and yeah. still looks. Oh, did we miss? I don't know. I think we might have just lost. I think we lost, we, we lost Mike. He's not. He's muted. But, but to continue on to Mike's, uh, yeah, so what, what's happening in the markets uh, this year, I think, is, as you said, like the commercial there was about talking about inflation for that fund. Now, why is that? Why is it an important month? It's because we finally get to see a little bit of the value that people kind of don't see in, in risk parity or in CTAs or global macro. Um, it's moments like this where you, you're kind of reminded, huh, okay, there's a third leg to this portfolio construction that we may be missing, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think I'll put some charts up right now, but I think um, while I do this, if anybody else has some thoughts on the current year. Yeah, I just love that it's we've gone from – it's, just, it's amazing how quickly this happens. We go from a FOMO market to a JOMO market, right? Um, fear of missing out turns into the joy of missing out. And, um, you know, for, for a few short weeks, at least, some of the responsible, prudent investors who've, who've you know, prioritized diversification and um, appropriate risk calibration for strategic portfolios get to be rewarded while the speculators are um, experiencing the risk side of the equation. And, um, you know, it's at times like these where we get to highlight some of the maybe um, misunderstandings that often propagate during the, the FOMO periods and then somehow get, get propagated onto these, um, these sell-off periods, but they don't connect the dots between what they thought should happen to some of these diversified strategies versus how these strategies actually fare in these kinds of markets. Turns out they do exactly what you would expect diversification to do and when they're properly calibrated. Yeah. Well, I think this is a nice defense of things like risperity, right? In the last couple of weeks, I've heard, I've been involved in, in webinars and 
listen to videos just railing uh, against this concept of risk parity and the periods where we're going to see equities and bonds correlate. Like People forget about the 70s when uh, bonds and equities lost the same amount at the same time. And uh, therefore, conclusion, things like risk parity, levered risk parity are going to suffer. Um, I think the first misconception, as a lot of our audience members will know, is the fact that for some reason, and I'm I still yet to understand why, but for some reason, the risk parity has been co-opted um, by by managers that are levering up bonds and stocks exclusively. Like the, I have heard a few people and, and portfolio managers just lever up bonds and equities. And in uh, those portfolios are going to struggle. You know what, what I'm showing? Can you guys see the screen? Yep. Yeah. So what I'm showing here is year to date. Right. This is a, this is exactly what everybody was clamoring about. What would happen? Correlation between bonds and equities. Um, bonds are down for you know, 5.9%. This is the long term 20, 30 year Treasury ticker TLT. And then the SPY is down 4.2 as of yesterday. Right. Flip it, the, but yes, anyways, the yellow is, the, is spot. yellow is S- SPY. You're right. Yeah. And then uh, treasuries. So it happened. It finally happened, right? Even if in this microcosm of those two things falling at the same time, and yet risk parity mandates, depending on which one you're sourcing, I'm just I just grabbed the S&P risk parity index here, is flat. It's down 80 basis points. Why? Because risk parity also includes that third leg of the stool, that that inflation protection through a wide variety of commodity complexes. And year to date, not surprisingly commodities are up 5.8% according to the Deutsche Bank Commodity Index, right? So it is that third leg that creates that balance that, that will give this, this view that risk parity is an all-weather, right? The, risk, the, the Ray Dalio approach to this, the reason he calls it all-weather is it, it can weather storms fairly well. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, the other sure. uh, side of this, you know, do you want to add to that, Adam? Yeah, I, just wanna, I, I, I think what's worth sort of pausing here for a second because I took a, a few minutes to look at some of the more popular risk parity funds and ETFs out there and see how they have been performing. And I think there is some dispersion and the dispersion comes from a few um, a few pieces. One is that most of the risk parity funds over the last decade have migrated from equal risk in equities, rates, and inflation assets to about um, 80% of the risk allocated between stocks and bonds and only 20% allocated to inflation assets. So there's been a lot more sort of equity rate risk just embedded in these strategies over time, probably due to investor demand. Um, The other component is that there is an ETF that, that I think is, they do attempt to uh, have one third of the risk in each of the different um, legs of the stool, but they get their inflation leg through exposure to commodity equities. And right, so because that's a that's a structure restriction. That's because exactly. of regulatory requirements. If yeah. you want it in an ETF, then th- these this, these are the compromises that you need to, to make, right? Um, and you know, oftentimes that's okay. The commodity equities will will generally track commodities. But when, you know, the commodity equities are a combination of commodity exposure and equity exposure. And on at times like these, sometimes the equity exposure swamps the commodity exposure and you don't get that 
inflation component exposure that you want, right? Yeah, when so, you think about the shocks that are involved in the concept of risk parity, we talk about positive growth shocks, negative growth shocks, positive inflation shocks, negative inflation shocks. And the problem with uh, commodity sensitive stocks is that it's 50-50 or it's a bit of both, right? So you get both the, in this case, the negative growth shock and the positive inflation shock, which sometimes doesn't work out. Whereas if you're doing pure commodities, you're getting that positive inflation shock uh, and the full blast of it, right? Yep. Um, so yeah, that's that's the risk parity side. Love to talk about the long short side too. If I, yeah. Mike, you're Mike, you're still we, can't hear you, man. we lost you're it. You're not muted, but we can't hear you. I'll continue. I'll continue sharing this screen here. Um, Maybe maybe muting Mike is is for everybody's best interest. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get through this, and then we'll get to the um, to the chat. But pipe in if you have any thoughts on this. But this is so. Then what we talked about is a passive risk parity index, right? And so it's kind of flatlined. But what if what about those um, those alternative strategies that promise to do a better job during inflation? This happens to be the CTA space, the global macro space, being able to take directional positions in commodities, both long and short. Well, it, you know, year to date, because of the ability to go long commodities and short other things, you know, short bonds and equities and the like, you know, those strategies we're highlighting here, the, uh, um, the multi alternative risk premium. So this is like global macro multi multi-factor as well in, in, in purple here is just straight up trend, right? So both of them doing a great job of offsetting, doing their job, in an inflationary regime, my personal view is that if you're going to be, if you need to protect against inflation and you have the choice between, you know, TIFFs or just TIFFs or just gold or just a commodity, passive commodity index, no, my passive commodity index, uh, you're still better off with an active manager that can go long and short because this inflationary regime is, is going to be, it's going to be hectic. It's going to be inflationary, deflationary, inflationary, deflationary. Well, that, to your point, right, it's about inflation volatility. Like a lot of advisors and investors, I think, feel like they need to build a portfolio or, or be able to tactically shift um, using some sort of um, macro discretionary framework between, you know, should I emphasize inflationary assets or should I emphasize growth assets, et cetera. And so, you know, there's an inflation scare and they feel like they got to go get long commodities. And in reality, maybe just strategic long commodities is not the optimal way to manage this risk because we don't have 100% confidence in an inflationary regime. What we have a lot more confidence in is that we're going to see much higher inflation volatility going forward. And so you want a strategy that has a demonstrable capacity to do well as inflation expectations shift between, you know, uh, positive inflation shocks and negative inflation shocks, which I think as you're going to show, we observe in other inflationary periods. They were just like a, a, a decade-long positive inflation shock. You get these positive and negative surprises along the way. Yeah, this you, is... You guys I, hear I think me this, I can hear you now, Mike. Right, I think this is a perfect chart. This is the 70s. You just talked about inflation volatility. Uh, just to make it clear here, what we have in yellow are passive commodities from Global Financial, uh, Global Financial Markets, I think is the database. But what you see is a, a period from point to point where commodities returned around 
The problem is between 74 and 77, there was a three-year just drag and, and a 37% drawdown there. In contrast, when you look at AQR's diverse trend index, it's nice and smooth, doesn't suffer that drawdown in the middle of the decade. And risk parity, similarly, just kind of nice optionality there for uh, 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 something to offset inflation, right? Um, in the last slide that I want to show before we get into the topics at hand is... Um, well, maybe maybe stick with this slide for a second here. Sure. Because if you think about the the concept is... You know, we had an oil crisis there in 73. Um, and if you think about, okay, so what was going to be my risk to capital markets in 2012 or 2013? It was going to be that Greece was going to step out of the Eurozone, right? What was my risk to capital markets that, that Lehman goes under and it pulls B of A with it, right? As opposed to just kind of everybody gets the bailout, AIG inclusive, right? What's what's my risk to capital markets in 2000? It's, it's that my Cisco and my Oracle is going to come tumbling down. Um, but what's my risk to capital markets in 2022 or 2023? The risk is 1973, 74, perhaps, or at least that would be seemingly where, where the market's mind is right now, right? In that, okay, we've got a seven handle on US CPI. We had 48 hours ago, German PPI, um, you know, you're talking the world's third largest exporter on, on that. German PPI broke broke to all-time levels above the 1951 uh, peak on month over month in Germany. Um, you know, you're talking about inflation volatility, Adam. <laughs> there you go, right? Wow, yeah, I hadn't even, seen that. Right, and so even if you retrace a U.S. CPI from seven to four, that's that's notable inflation fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and and where are we in terms of a steady state for our central bankers, right? So the base case on 2022 is that Jay Powell gives us three to four hikes. Uh, but how much variability do we have on that? So to the extent that Butler's talking about inflation fall, it filters into everything else in society. It filters into equity vol. And as you could see here from this chart, not to belabor the point, it is that yellow line spiking there in the early seventies that causes that dark blue line to go tumbling down. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's why you are diversified. I mean, it's, you know, we, we look at the micro term here the last two or three weeks at wisdom tree. It is our, yeah, it's our commodity fund is the only thing that's, that's, uh, you know, really behaving. The value stuff is doing okay, much better than anything NASDAQ feel, but um, yeah, you've got volatility all over the place, Adam. I mean, just, just look at, uh, you know, look at lumber. Yeah, lumber's mm-hmm. ripping back right now. Um, oh, talk about volatility! You, know, you get the you, yeah. you get this sort of four hundred percent rise. You get an eighty percent retracement, and then you get another you know retracement back near the highs in lumber. Right, like mm-hmm. this kind yeah. of volatility. Imagine being a builder and needing to navigate this kind of volatility in the prices of your of the inputs to the products that you're building. Like, and mm-hmm. this is happening all over. I just spoke to a good friend of mine who is in electrical distributing. He said he had a fully one third of his gross margin last year came just from a rise in the inventory cost of copper wiring. <laughs> yeah. Right? We haven't, we haven't gotten to the point now where the thieves are stealing the copper like they did in the commodity. Yes, super cycle 15 yeah. years ago. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it is it, one of the risks is, I mean, if you think about, okay, everybody's money good on their credit card right now in the U S so we only have 1.5% in, 
credit card delinquencies. And you think about when Greenspan started hiking in 04, we had 4% delinquency. So everybody took their $1,400 and they're cashed up. But now that the long end has sold off, the conforming mortgage in the United States is now north of 3.5. It was three in what? 90 days ago, it was three. Yep. And now yep. what happens when that builder needs to go get their hands on some lumber? So there is a lot of this in the background. Was the inflation in 2021 a nuisance? Is it in 2022 a headache? Right. Uh, you know, and that's, that presupposes it was only a nuisance last year. And I, you know, I beg to differ. Yeah. No, I yeah. Well, that's I, it. I, isn't I think it? one of the, one of the key points from a, from the risk parity perspective and, and also constructing a thoughtful exposure to inflation type assets is the idea of preparation versus prediction. If we go back a year and think about how many people were ready or anticipating the type of increase that we've had in both the the rate of inflation across the board, plus the volatility around that, it's not very many. And it's likely that that's a persistent type of situation. So if you are not exposed from the perspective of preparation rather than trying to, oh, I'll be there when I need to be there. Well, you're seeing what that's like, you know, 10 days in the NASDAQ and I'm, I'm not, I'm still there, but I haven't diversified into any other things that are moving in sort of a different uh, step to slightly different music. Um, you're going to, you're going to feel that volatility echo right through your account statement. And, um, that that then of course leads to poor behavior. So you know it's it's certainly not too late to to really think about the concept of uh, getting other asset classes that behave uh, more uh, in, in 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 that frequency with the inflation assets, and then thinking about how you're going to manage risk around that too. Because we've got this massive volatility, so it's not just having exposures; it's thinking about how you're going to add to and attenuate them around the edges. Not I have it, I don't have it tomorrow and then I have it again today. I yeah. think that's, that's going to be really you know, challenging. It's interesting. And Jeff, you guys are running that commodity ETF. Mm-hmm. And you have a wide variety of commodities. What's interesting to see is many advisors and investors out there being really baffled by how their gold position didn't, didn't protect them last year. Right. right. I don't know what, oh, I actually I don't know what gold that, is doing but... here today, but it, it just speaks to, <laughs> it does speak to what is inflation, Right. And what tools do you actually need to combat a decade's worth of inflation volatility? And what, when, and how? It's just such um, a, a wide landscape of probabilities and... and, and uh, how can inflation arise and, and how it arises then determines what type of instruments you need in the portfolio in, either, in order to manage that risk. Right. Well, look, you know, the, the, the thing that's been puzzling for people is is that gold didn't react and gold was a punk asset class as inflation was percolating much to the chagrin of the precious metals bulls and a lot of it was because i think you had this uh, this concept of at the margin at the margin i anticipate inflation i don't like what the fed is doing i'm going to grab Bitcoin, Ethereum, something like that. And so the dollar moved, the the marginal dollar moved into this asset class that hadn't existed when, if I saw inflation in 1970 or 75, I had two to choose from, basically, gold and, and silver. And in this case, there was more to choose from. So you didn't have that bid in the marketplace for the precious metals. Now, what's interesting 
you know, on this on this question of, of crypto versus the, the metals, as you had a total lack of correlation. Um, and then and then it seemed in the second half last year, there was seemed to be clicking. But now you got this rollover here in, in so-called risk assets dating back to maybe you dated to November 8th when the Nasdaq kind of peaked. Maybe you dated to December 3rd when rates bottomed. Uh, but gold's been sneakily creeping a little yeah, bit. It was like 1780. Now it's maybe 1830, 1840, something like that. It's behind the scenes. And a couple sessions ago, I don't know what we're talking about micro term, but, you know, Van Eck with their gold miners, um, that thing popped 7% in, in, a, in a punk session. It was one of those sessions where, where Tesla was being taken out. Pel- you know, everybody's talking about the bicycle pelt. <laughs> you know, Mike, if you see what they're, they're saying about that, it's this yeah. iPad, iPad taped to a bicycle. They're brutal yeah. on social media. <laughs> you know, the gold miners started percolating recently, and you start to wonder whether or not that's got a new bid in it. Um, you know, it had been the asset class had been really in the basement for some time. But well, let me share my screen on. Let me share my screen on on, on that point. About, yeah, let's see it. Um, so this is this is a chart I recently found, which is basically mapping gold price with real rates, right? So, note here in August of 2020, that seemed to to have been the bottom of of the rates of negative rates. So we we hit real rates down to negative 1.15 according to this chart. That was the peak of gold, right? That's when gold kind of peaked. And that was August 2020. From there, rates actually improved. Real rates actually improved. And gold got crushed in 2021. And then kind of had gone sideways, both the real rate and gold at the same time. So they're negatively correlated, right? So this concept, this idea of also like a lot of people talk about Bitcoin taking over gold. I'm like, no, maybe it's a, it's a different type of inflation. It's a monetary inflation that led to negative yet rates that led the gold doing really, really well in 2020 up until that point. So I, I think, again, this is a different inflation issue, right? This is a different type of inflation that was led specifically by the Fed bringing rates down to negative territory, real rates down to negative territory. And the 2021 was a supply chain issue that bled out into commodities. Well, yeah, well, you've, you've got gold sort of as a hedge against well, a few things, first of all, like a, a lack of confidence in, in currencies, but also gold tends to thrive during financial repression. So if you see a spike in inflation, but the Fed is holding rates lower artificially in order to provide fiscal room for fiscal expansion, that's where you see typically see, see gold begin to move. And I think what we're seeing right now is the market coming to grips with the fact that the Fed may not be as repressive as everybody expected them to be, that they may actually respond by becoming more hawkish in the face of this more persistent inflation. I mean, Powell has, for the last two or three meetings, admitted that this inflation impulse has been more sustainable than they had expected, right? They were talking about transitory. They removed that transitory language. And now they've talked about they're talking about persistent inflation and a rise in expectations. We're not yet seeing that in some of the inflation price data, like the break-evens and the five-year five five-year forward rates have sort of equilibrated a little bit here. Um, but I think some of that is just the market saying the Fed may not allow inflation to get out of hand to the degree that they thought the Fed might let it get out of hand, even sort of three to six months ago. 
And yeah. so, you know, gold is not seeing an expectation of, a, of sustained negative rates. And, you know, the chart you just showed showed a major reversion of real rates back above into, into positive territory where they were in material negative territory for a while, right? So all of these dynamics kind of play into gold. And again, speaks to the idea that trying to manage your gold position or manage your inflation hedges from a discretionary standpoint by trying to navigate the central bank um, supply chain, commodity constraint, um, you know, multidimensional demand dynamic is probably a mugs game and, and you want to have some systematic methods that are proven with their ability to be responsive, not every time, but over time in these types of environments. Let me ask you guys this, you know, it's, we only really have inflationary environments from, you know, in the case of many of our careers, just the, in fact, everybody, all four of us, only the commodity super cycle that was, you know, yeah. called 15 years ago. Before that, we're just going based on what we've read for the 1970s. And, you know, when Greenspan took Fed funds down to one, that was wild. That was really wild. He was trying to, he was trying to, hopefully let the, the NASDAQ players off the hook, but NASDAQ ultimately fell 77% from 00 yeah. to 02. And he went down to one and it was, I can't believe this guy. What is he even thinking? This is the nuttiest public policy I've ever seen. Said everybody. And now here we are, we're at zero, right? Zero to 0. 0.25, right? And then, and, and street consensus is, you know, we're going to get to 75 or 100 basis points by the end of this year. So, and then forget the balance sheet, which, by the way, <laughs> tapering down the speed with which you are still expanding your balance sheet. Yeah, it's only a first derivative. That <laughs> oh, really? Design, right? Yeah. Wait. You, you know, it's, it's, is that the language? Know, they're tapering down the, the well, speed that's by which? Yeah, they're going to allow it to run right. off because the maturity of the balance sheet actually has really shrunk. So they just by not buying, the bonds will mature. And so the size of the balance sheet will shrink over time right. without them having to sell any into the market. Right. From, from extraordinary to still extraordinary. And, yeah. and you know, it, it, it's one of these things where they're so far behind the curve. And, and you know, Adam, you mentioned the, the, the supply chain and none of the four of us have the answer. We can only it's conjecture. But the, the supply chain still has serious issues. And the central Definitely. bank, of course, can't can't quell that. But, you know, the Canadian trucker strike, I don't know if that's still persisting, but. Americans just don't get it. Uh, you know, I'm the token American on the call here. Americans just do not get how much we trade with Canada. They don't. Right. They think it's all China. They don't realize. Uh, maybe they'll realize in a week or two if, this, if the store shelves start to to empty. And well, they're going to have an abundance of strawberries and blueberries. I think in, in yeah Maine and North Dakota. From, yeah, <laughs> something from like all the deliveries that can't can't go across the border. And the other thing is psychologically, you know, it's 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 just ink on paper. But the psychology of those CPI numbers in the United States have an effect when when people who are not in financial services are talking about the CPI number. You got a problem. And what we very clearly have coming in the next three, six, nine CPI reports in the United States, your guess is as good as mine, is the housing inflation that we had in 21 
which did not show up in the shelter components of our CPI calculation. CPI is 33, 32, 33% of, of US CPI. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, cal- yeah. they, they have shelter up for, for calendar 21 in the United States at 3.84. Yeah, so help un- unpack that for me, Jeff, because okay. I've, been, I've been railing on this point so it's, I force. What's going on here? Here's the deal. When I was back in, well, if we got Canadians here, back in university. We, we, are, we call it back in college, okay? <laughs> I earned $7 an hour. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a two-minute two story. I gotta, this, gotta make, this story needs to happen here. Take some time. $7, seven U.S. per hour, and I was calling on the state of Florida conducting this type of research. Hi, Adam. Um, yes, uh, conducting research on behalf of the state of Florida. What's your annual income? What's your race? Um, how long have you been in your house? Oh, are you renting? What's your rent? Blah, 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 blah. 30 or 60 minutes to collect this data, for, for example, Medicaid, right? The, the university system collects the data, like University of Michigan Consumer Confidence. And what happens is, is all right, Jessica and I bought this house years ago. The Bureau of Labor Statistics would come to me now and say, Jeff, what would your home rent for right now? You don't have the foggiest all day long. I'm all day long. I'm doing ETFs and I'm doing value versus growth. And I'm doing tell people about Greenspan from 25 years ago. I have no idea what this place would rent for. And what happens is, is there's a, and people need to understand this. What happens is, is you answer, you say, uh, I don't know. I got this apartment. I'll rent for 500 bucks or a thousand bucks because you own it. And then, what you realize, because I think average apartment rents in the United States are like $800 or something. So let's say it's an $800 apartment. I don't realize that in my neighborhood, rents are up 20% because I'm not a renter. I'm an owner. Until word gets around, somebody comes to my house for some drinks and they say, you know, my landlord raised my rent by 20%. Uh, well, I just told the Bureau of Labor Statistics that rent was up 5% because I didn't realize that it was that hot. Then six months later, the surveys come, the Bureau of Labor Statistics calls me back, or I guess it's on the internet now, and they say, hey, Jeff, you, you, what's the rent? Is it $800 now? No, it's $900, $1,000, or $1,100, or you know, whatever the number may be. Um, and that is essentially what ends up happening is, is you have this lagged effect on the shelter components on owner's equivalent rent, which is the way they end up calculating it. So owner's equivalent rent by the Bureau of Labor Statistics was up something like three or four in 2021. Which really? will come to, uh, what yeah. was the median house price up? 18. <laughs> so, Case, Schiller, Case Schiller was up 18. And then if you go to, if you go to Reddit or, or not Reddit, literally I'm saying Reddit because of GameStop and all this. <laughs> uh, not Reddit. What? Redfin. You go to Redfin or you go to Zillow and they have big data and they say rents were up 11 or 12. But right. rents are showing up as three or four. So you're going to get a February, a March, and April CPI number out of the United States. It's still telling you stuff that happened three or four quarters before, but it's going to be sticky, five, six, seven. And I'm not so sure that the market appreciates it. And to, to not belabor the point, we've got two CPI numbers coming in before the March Fed meeting, February 10th and March 10th. So people need to be aware of that. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so this what is, percentage this is, of the shelter component is owner's equivalent? Is it? Is it about a half? Is it a third? Oh, I know that the two combined are like thirty-two. I oh, think wow. owner's equivalent rent is probably the higher component because I think something like two-thirds of Americans are homeowners. 
Right. So maybe you call it 20% is uh, owner's equivalent rent and 10 or 12 might be rent. Um, Honestly, but- I, ha- I put my tin hat on for the first time in, in five or six years on this owner's equivalent rent component of the CPI, because I just can't imagine that these statisticians at the Bureau of Labor Statistics believe that Ma and Pa Kettle sitting in their home they've lived in for 40 years. Bingo. Who socialize with only other people of their age group that also have owned their homes for 30, 40 years have any idea what their home would rent for. No it's idea. It's absurd. And also, you know, if you go to Germany, where the vast majority of people rent their homes, that's one thing. that You, you, get, a, you get a big sample size there. The reality is that because of the push to, ho- to own a home in both U.S. and Canada, the vast majority of people that you're going to source are going to own a home with zero money down, right? Yeah. And they won't know the rent. You won't get a, a, as, as large enough a sample size, and you will be ignorant to what you would rent your house for, right? So it's, it's, it's a problem in the U.S. And it's, it's even more so, Rodrigo, because you think about me and Jessica, right? We're 25 years old, newlywed in Chicago. We didn't know a single homeowner. They, all of our friends were 25 years old. So not only did we know our rent, we knew all of our friends' rent, mm-hmm. right? Now I'm 40, right? And it's yeah. the opposite. We don't really know any renters. So it's, it's, it's doubly, not only do you not know your own rent, but you don't even have a comp. But I know what the price of all these houses is. So it's, right. it's, think about it from that perspective. So, so, okay. So we have rising inflation. We're seeing it at least contemporaneously, whether it's going to be um, here to stay or not. I don't know. Um, how, does, how does the next year play out for different type of sectors? Like value, everybody's talking about value versus growth and the tech stocks and, you know, who's going to get crushed. What are you seeing if we see a rising rate environment I need for the another future? Beer for him to unleash on this theme, dude. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Gee, I, do, I don't have any strong opinions on value versus growth. Yeah, it's... Um, Look, okay, let's take that let's take that COVID crash um, from February 19th to March 23rd of 20. Right. So and let's think about the components or the cause of that crash. Because right now, I mean, Rodrigo, am I am I being fair in saying that this is a stealth crash inside the Nasdaq? The S&P is holding fine. The S&P is at 44. Right. Peak was what, 48 on that. Um, we got stuff with black ink. So long as it's in value. But I mean, if you're in anything that's, uh, you know, know, that the the big rep is anything unprofitable right now, it is a stealth crash. Um, And and so if you think about the COVID crash and you think about the only other crashes in our in our careers or in our uh, memory. Right. You have the Lehman crash and you have the dot com crash, which the interesting thing about the dot com crash, as I was pointing out in some of the literature, um, Cheap plug, you can find my stuff on wisdomtree.com, right? So um, if you think about the 1990s bubble, as I was writing at length, anybody will listen, is we call it the TMT bubble, tech, media, and telecom. But I was just I was, I was, was just racking my brain remembering what was going up a lot in the 90s. What stocks do I remember going up a lot? And it was like everyone I typed in was a five-bagger from 1995 to 2000. I'll give you some examples. I'm not even going to say. While you're giving examples, you just, you were such a tease yesterday. You threw out that chart and made everybody <laughs> guess. And then you didn't even tell us what the answer was. I, he did. I he did. did. He did. You know what it was? What? It was, it was the gap. The gap. The gap. Like gap, gap kids where you take, where you go get clothing. Wow. Okay. Wait, I, what was I, the question? 
the question was, here's a here's a mystery chart. What chart is this? And of course, this, this thing is going just like from $5 to $50 or something from 1995 to 2000. And of course, the, you know, I tricked Mr. Butler over here because everybody's going to say Qualcomm or Cisco sure. <laughs> um, or anything, right? Just My guess was eBay. Yeah, e- <laughs> oh, man, I remember that one. Um, <laughs> Yahoo. I write this, this laundry list and it was the gap. And the reason was because I remember, and, and this is some of the stuff I'm writing about, is we've got some companies out here in this market that are not really tech. Are they tech? You know, are they, te- you know, I don't, I don't really know what they it's are. It's a good maybe, question. Maybe, What's Apple? Is Apple but they're tech? cool. The thing is, is Amazon is, tech? Amazon's considered consumer discretionary, but it's, there's these companies out there. There's a lot of them that are cool. And the, the appeal is they're, they're sexy stocks, right? There, there's there's an appeal to it. And the thing was, it's hard to remember, guys. But when I was a kid, you know, we used to go to the mall and hang out on a Saturday. And the Gap was cool. And the Gap was a 10-bagger in the 1990s. And we don't really remember it now because the, the brand, I think, has kind of fallen by the wayside. I don't know the name. I was a Gap employee at, in the oh. late 90s. <laughs> I was a fantastic greeter. Also, Jeff, I think your turtleneck looks great, buddy. Don't. I, I got it at right. the gap. <laughs> I probably sold it to you. Well, now here's the thing: when you go back into the 1990s, the so-called TMT bubble, and I, I'm I'm coming a roundabout way to talk COVID here, uh, the de- deflationary crisis of COVID mm-hmm. and the inflationary crisis here in 2010. You know, you had big runs pull up the charts back in the 90s, Pfizer. Coca-Cola, I was pulling all of them. ExxonMobil, you guys, come on. Brent Crude and West Texas Intermediate were in a bear market throughout the 1990s. But 13 Exxon, bucks. Yeah, yeah, but ExxonMobil was in a bull market. It was Everybody was in a bull trend. Uh, P&G was, was up several fold. Mo, I mean, cigarettes were doing well. Consumer staples, you just didn't think of it. There was a lot of stuff racing higher. It might not have been racing quite like Intel and Amazon, but there was a, it was an all equity, broad bull market. But when you write a book in 2002, 2003, a post-mortem, you write about the really most egregious stuff because you're trying to get people to buy your book. And the most egregious stuff was over in tech and .com. And I say that because right now we have this broad participation even value is in a bull market it's just underperforming but even value has done very very well yeah. um we're at the point where on on our mandates where we're you know oh we get something at 12 we have a basket at 12 or 13 times forward earnings and it's appealing because fed's down zero and because you get 21 on the four, 21 times forward earnings on the broad market um and if you there was think a time about- when 12 times forward earnings would have been unthinkable like that would have been a growth stock (laughs) (laughs) well when we bought the stock market in 82 it was a matter of routine to find the the blue chips at six seven eight times earnings posting big dividend yields of course you had paul volcker was was up in the stratosphere on fed funds but but what i'm getting at is is okay so what was the winning strategy there in the first quarter of 20 when COVID is striking and it's essentially disinflationary growth um crisis stay at home, cyclical rebound. That's not even what we're thinking. We're going to have everybody lose their job here. And so you go piling into whatever it might be, you know, at least on a relative basis, fangs, 
Zoom. Russell 2000 growth, Zoom, the laptop taped to the bicycle, Peloton, <laughs> that type of thing. And now, now it seems that if, if, and I say if guys, because how many times have we all been wrong on markets? For sure. If this is something like a stealth bear inside the NASDAQ, inside the Russell 3000, certainly inside the Russell 2000. Um, and it, maybe it's a stealth bear that starts grabbing the, the market's generals. I mean, some of these generals have been punk of late. Amazon's been dead money for a year. Tesla's Tesla's off two or 300 points here from the peak, which is 12 or 1300 on that name. Um, what is not going to work? It would seemingly be everything that worked during the COVID crash and, and, and immediately thereafter. And also critically, and I'll stop here. Everything that was really game on from March 09 until we started hitting the skids here in about the third quarter of last year, as a dozen years. If you get it 10 or 12 on the other side, 10 or 12 years, whatever it may be, it's got to be the opposite side of the trade. And I don't know that there's enough people in our industry that are prepared for a multi-year bout of doing the opposite of everything that they've done their entire career. Well, look, it's a good old fashioned, diverse bear market, right? Like, when was the last time that happened? Oh, wait, it was a credit crisis. It was mm-hmm. an everything down, you know, nothing saved. You're out for the count. COVID was kind of similar, right? It was a liquidity event. It was a disinflationary negative growth shock. When you look at the 2000s, you actually saw value in the late 90s underperform drastically to the point where Cliff Assness was about to call it quits. GMO was being fired, Right. And, and Druckenmiller, I think, was also involved in this terrible, you know, late, late transition. And in the 2000s. It was long in 99, though. Yeah. And, and that's a good And so what happened in the 2000s was it, in, in the big leaders, the big index leaders, the bit large indices, they were down drastically 40, 45, 50%. The NASDAQ was down 75%. But value managers cruised through, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I remember the best performing mutual fund in Canada was the Sprott Equity and uh, um, Sprott e- Equity Fund. What did Sprott invest in? Commodities. Like it was crushing it. It had no bear market, and of course, it, it was then bought as a as a bear market protection protocol. Bad idea for a way. So I think I think what you're you're highlighting there is something that we touched on before, but right now is a really good time to read. Interesting, it, yeah, right? because. The market dynamic we have right now for most investors who, let's face it, are cap-weighted investors. And that has increasingly become, you know, that, that trend has accelerated over the last decade. The cap-weighted index is more dominated by, by big tech than it has been since the 2000 peak. Meanwhile, the sectors that do well during inflationary periods or during, you know, periods where the where rates are rising and therefore high duration equities get treated like more like bonds and end up selling off is those sectors like energy and materials, which to Jeff's point have been the laggards, not just for the last, you know, three years or five years, but ever since the 2009 peak or Mm. 2009 bottom, right. They represent a vanishingly small proportion of the cap weighted index. Big cap tech represents, what is it, Jeff? You'll tell me. I'm going to say 28% or something of the, of the cap weighted index, but something obscene, right? And so even if 
energy and material sectors rise by 50%, 100%, 200% the next three years. And if, if big tech drops by 10, 20, 30%, the index is going to go down because the weighting of those energy materials and inflation oriented sectors is just too small to overcome the drag from from big tech and so you could have a a, a market situation where the cap weighted index goes through a two three four year decline or kind of grind lower while two or three or four subsectors just have massive profits yeah but the cap-weighted investor doesn't participate. And instead, it ends up being a lost, you know, obviously from 2000 to, to, to 2011 was, was a lost 11, 12 years for, mm-hmm. it, for, for cap-weighted investors, right? For equal-weighted S&P investors, they peaked in 1998. And, and by 2008, they were 40, 50% above the 2000 peak or the 1998 peak for the equal-weighted, right? So it's the cap-weighted investors, which to grant them their due, have had the best run in the history of cap-weighted investing over the last 10 years, okay? So, you know, we're sounding smart now for like three weeks, right? (laughs) Three weeks. cap-weighted guys have have absolutely crushed it. At least the U.S. cap-weighted guys have absolutely crushed it for the last 10 years. And all of us smart guys look like dumbasses, but these are the investors now that are most vulnerable. But look, this is this is active management. I mean, Calpers is going to turn around five years from now and start buying active managers again to help them transition through this type of bear market, right? Uh, so I think this is. We've been saying this for ten years, by the way, Adam. I agree, but I think that at some point we're going to get to a traditional bear market where you're going to need to, to where you can choose, pick and choose where you want to participate at the level of AUM for your portfolio that will, that will get you through it. And active managers, whether it's asset allocation or sector selection or stock pickers, might, might be back. There's, there, in the last 10 years, there hasn't been much of a choice. Fangs. I mean, see, that's where the growth was only coming from them. In this type of market with higher yields and more global uh, investing, U.S. dollar going down, global markets and, and, and opportunities arise, where all of a sudden money has to be spread about by many, many companies that have growth opportunities that didn't exist 10 years ago, over the last 10 years. So while I do still think that Apple does cool things and it's not just a tech company and what is Google and all these things, I think they'll continue to grow. They'll have to share the love in a way that they, they haven't needed to in the last 10 years. Jeff, actually, to, to, your, to Rodrigo's point about um, Google and Apple, um, do you have any thoughts or comments on the recent um, Senate committee announcement on the antitrust? They passed the antitrust rules against um, big tech? Not, not really. Not really. I've, uh, the thing that I've been bopping around in my mind that I've been uh, perplexed by for so long is, I can't believe the public hasn't come and at, come after these social media companies with pitchforks yet. Preach, preach, um, um, And and here's the other risk that that I just I don't know. Maybe it's the hubris of a bull market, and you know what? Maybe it's like Gap. Let's 
at some point, maybe the kids just think that what you're selling is boring. And we've seen that with with the actual platform of Facebook, right? It's older people like us are on Facebook. The kids move to Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. And what happens if Instagram just flat out becomes not cool anymore? It's really very simple um, on that matter. Now, with respect to Twitter, you know, that's a mid cap and I don't cover the name, right? You know, I don't do individual stocks, guys. I'm at Wisdom Tree. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing, we're doing uh, you know, screens for dividends and such. Yeah. But, you know, when you think about Twitter, it's like, Every time something comes into my feed, so-and-so got kicked off of Twitter. It was somebody I was following. So I'm clearly following the right people, right? The people that are, you know, and, you know, they tried to kick off the hyperinflation guy a week ago and he got reinstated. It's like, come on, we need these people. Rudy Havenstein. Yeah, you know, and it's it's like. How do, why did he get kicked off? I don't know. I don't know. And it's, it's, we need to have free discourse. Counter narrative. And we need to allow to, allow people to uh, let me decide what's true and what's false based on who I've chosen to follow. I don't need the state to be, uh, you know, deciding what, what is true or false for me. So that's one of the risks. an offline discussion on this topic, dude. <laughs> so it's one of the risks to these platforms is that ultimately either the kids get bored with it um, or somebody else comes along with another platform if they'll be allowed to do it. And we say, all right, we're all going to wholesale shift away from this stuff. So I think that's that's one of them. Now, you know, with in terms of uh, some of the antitrust issues, you know, the, the, the one that's in the background is Amazon with Margaret Vestager over in, in Europe, you know, they were very, very disappointed with, with the way Amazon was um, charging the individual vendors um, in continental Europe. And then also remember Amazon three or four months ago, they just, just resolved it, but Amazon was duking it out with visa because of the, the, the fees levied by the card companies on Amazon. So you have this company that's so powerful that it can boss around Visa and in turn MasterCard, which are the, the primary payments programs. I mean, because I, you know, I don't think a firm is going to make a dent in these guys. Um, just how powerful are these corporations? And then the other thing is, is you know, even if you don't go by classic antitrust grounds in, in discussing these things, all that matters is September or October rolls around and you're looking to get a senator or a congressional seat on either party's ticket in the United States, by the way, either party. Say some things about Google or Amazon on the stump, and I think you might just win your office. Well, this um, is what was so remarkable about this new legislation that they passed. It was a bipartisan bill. It passed as a bipartisan you know, um, legislation in the Senate. So you've got both sides of the aisle cracking down on big tech, and obviously they're perceiving this as a um, – you know, b- both parties are perceiving this as a way to continue to gain support from their base, right? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the other Which thing is crazy because is- it'll make it more expensive for them as their Amazon deliveries go up. You know, Amazon <laughs> is not, it's not squarely in the target here. No, no, this one's Facebook Google and, 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 yeah. uh, and Apple and about their app stores. Amazon was sort of in the target, but mostly it's they can't place their any Amazon branded or Amazon affiliated products ahead of other um, vendor products in their search algo, which, which does have an impact on their bottom line, but it's it's a slightly different um, dynamic than what's going on with Google and Apple. Anyways, I just thought it was interesting because 
I noticed yesterday the legislation was passed. I think it was passed unexpectedly um, at around 10 or 11 a.m. And I was watching big tech and there wasn't much reaction immediately. And then, you know, two hours later, there was this like massive trending collapse into the close. And, you know, I don't know, cause effect is, is pretty tricky. And obviously we're seeing follow through again today and who knows what's going on, but I can't help but think that this is, that's the potential to materially dent bottom lines over the intermediate term for some of these big firms. Let me ask you guys this question, you know, ESG, right? Environmental, social, and governance. Second letter there is social. These companies are called social media. <laughs> you know, I talk, no I talk with the gang over there at, at wisdom trade. Like, hey, maybe, maybe we should take some of these ESG funds we have and let's talk about these companies are antisocial. What what That's is the social point. part of ESG if it's not making sure that you know our society isn't at tenor, you know we aren't at each other's throats? Is the is the is the put option on social media that the ESG crowd gets either a, they decide it themselves or they get the push? I love this theme. I had not thought of this, but I think it's magnificent. And I, I mean, it really is the exact same theme as the lobby against Philip Morris, mm. right? You have an extraordinarily destructive, addictive tech or product, let's just say product, right? That is fundamentally harming society. It is, it's, it, they're externalizing a massive amount of societal cost. And, you know, those externalities are being borne by society while they're profiting from their bottom line, right? So it wouldn't take much, especially with this bipartisan support that we're seeing for these for these big um, antitrust tech bills, for this to be recharacterized as a social harm. Also, but I mean, ESG is the only topic that keeps on beating inflation depending on the poll that you're seeing, right? The power of ESG against whatever it believes as a conglomerate is bad for society has gotten hurt. If you look at the amount of investing in oil and gas, because it is believed that that is bad E, right? That has affected these companies, their ability to to invest in future projects. So you're going to, if they catch on to this, which I think is brilliant, it is definitely a detractor in society, when you talk about, you have conversations about your children. My kids are seven and 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is freaking out because they don't have any devices yet. And, uh, and I'm saying to her, you know what? Society is going to find a way to, by the time it's our problem, it's likely a lot of it's going to be solved. And it might just be with the ESG crowd. I like that, that concept a lot. And I think they have power to do that in short order. Well, if they choose. And one of the interesting things about ESG is it could be a proxy for for growth and value, right? So the, you, you notice, I, I was pointing this the other day, don't quote me on it, but I think uh, like on an MSCI US ESG relative regular old MSCI US, there had been 100 BIPs worth of underperformance in the ESG mandate since November something, right? So in the last two or three months. And the reason is, is because you're underweight, all the stuff that's at least held up a little bit better and you're overweight, you overweight, you know, the, uh, 
the, the, the tech sector and your overweight communication services and these types of concepts that have been um, populating these growth indexes. So the, the fewer, no, no matter where they may fall on ESG, there is that there is that pair trade. Uh, you know what's funny too, Jeff? Like this is all just narrative anyway, right? Like you can just imagine a CalPERS or a Hoop or a CPP deciding that they want to get long more value names or want to get long more commodity names and they want to get off their tech holdings, but they've got this cap weighting constraint, but they also have this ESG mandate and they're like, you know, triangulating on the fact that, okay, if I just shift my definition of ESG to include the externalities of these social harms that big tech is inflicting. Now, now they're on the same basis as the Exxon Mobiles of the world. And that gives me yeah. a, the, the ability to, to express this sort of view while maintaining that. ESG does, narrative. Does, does CalPERS have to push sustainalytics in that circumstance or, or the other consultants directionally because don't you basically have to abide by whoever your ESG consultant is telling you Texas teachers CalPERS something like that well okay does Texas teachers tell MSCI how they want to have their ESG um I don't know maybe or does MSCI tell CalPERS hasn't haven't they sort of moved the goalposts a little bit on ESG too from the standpoint of uh it's becoming the process of declaration and improvement from your current level in order that you can continue to include um, assets that may be, you know. No, it's a good point. Disclosure is enough. Like you can, yeah. if you're Exxon. At the moment. Like, yeah. If you're like the Koch brothers, but you've got a massive ESG disclosure statement, your MSCI says you are, you know, yeah. you rank highly on ESG because you've told us about all of the environmental waste you're pumping into the rivers. And, and, and you've looked at ways to improve it and you have a plan to bring that down and, and all I don't that even sort think of that's stuff. Necessary. I think it's literally, if you just disclose it, then you, you, you get 80% of the well, there. So from what I understand, I think this is a messy, messy area. And there is a big growth on consultants that will ask you what your E, your S and G is and create portfolios based on that. Right. So a lot of it, especially in the large institutions, are driven by the constituents, by the board, by their values. And then they get a consultant and say, these are our values, go source us the product and create an SMA for us. Right. So there's still a lot of, a lot of that as well. And I'm, you know, I'm sure I like that. How do you, how do you lobby the ESG world to include a high pollutant into your index while you tell them you're going to do better? You <laughs> that is that a question, is that a question that was typed in? To be frank, though, that that's where the, the biggest impact would come. So, so to be fair, um, just filling your portfolio with a Tesla or whatever, and, and you know that has a whole bunch of hair on it too. So, I'm not saying that, but getting those who are the worst offenders or offenders to to some form of accountability is where a lot of the potential improvement in in the environmental, social, and governance areas, like once you. It's hard to do, but I mean, that's, so it's, you can't just overlook that part of it, right? You do have to sort of say, here's the, here's the, the, the global, you know, uh, available companies that we can invest in. And where would we get the biggest juice for the squeeze? Well, improving the largest offenders probably gives you the largest impact. No, that's a very fair point. Absolutely. Point. Yes. Yeah. So, point. so it, it's, it's hard, it's hard not to, to do that, to take that approach. And so I do think that that's a, that is a, uh, 
it's a viable, you, you have to have that. You have to account, you have to allow for that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. I guess my, my only point was that the way I understood it, because we've been doing a lot of work on, on, on ESG mm -hmm. um, recently, because we've got a new division that kind of focuses on that in Canada, but it does, I am scratching my head a little bit because it does seem like disclosure alone gets you a very long way um, towards um, being awarded high ESG rankings, right? But I, but I also agree that disclosure is sort of the first step. Correct. That's to, yeah. So, so that's a fair, that's a fair. First, we have to get you on the hook admitting, and then we're going right. to get you on the hook to improve. Yeah. And how much, um, how much of this ends up sticking if copper goes to $6 a pound and, and yeah, Brent crude goes to one and a quarter. Yeah. It's, you, it, you, you have this, you have this underinvestment in all of this area at yeah. the moment, the capital mm -hmm. investment. Well, look, look at the flows, right? The, the flows we we're talking about market cap weighted indices. The fact that, you know, the, the U S markets are 61% of global market cap and I don't know, 30% of global GDP. Mm -hmm. um, so you have the biggest flows of capital, I think, are probably in the U.S. And those flows are largely going to predetermined market cap weighted S&P type um, um, allocations, which then continues to leave um, a lot of the resource space underfunded from the standpoint of, of getting access to capital. And so, yeah, you're, you, it sets up a very interesting set of circumstances where you could see substantially higher um, commodity prices. Now, I, so so we've been we've been talking about the, what about the what about the deflationary side? Do you guys want to delve into that a little bit? Like, no. what about the? the <laughs> That's not uh, what this podcast is about. No, no, but, no, no. Yeah. Let's let's flesh it out. So 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 walk us through one or two different ways that we might that that might play out over the next. Yeah, I'm. I'm. No, I'm, sure. I'm actually. I think Jeff's the one to, to help us through that. It's easier for me to tell that. you guys this than my wife. She, you know, she sit there like eight o'clock with a glass of wine and like, please, please, with the inflation. With the inflation. <laughs> 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 um, all, right, all right. So, so for one, I don't. You know, I. I I don't know that we need to get too into the, the birth rates as a, the primary catalyst for a deflationary situation. But, um, you know, one of the things that was notable is that with um, with COVID, um, we found that it was the opposite of what you would might have expected. They had data that were showing that when a hurricane is coming to South Florida, that oh, 40 weeks later, wouldn't you know it? We have a little bit more babies in the hospital down in Miami uh, because people were home for three or four days for the hurricane. With the power off. Yeah, with the power <laughs> off. And uh, there was that theory going around that that was going to happen with COVID, right? I mean, it makes total sense, um, except it didn't. Because the divorce rate went through the roof. The divorce rate, but also a critical mass of people um, were just, I guess, very, very afraid to bring a child into the world, right? Because mm. there's a broad spectrum of opinions and it just didn't happen and it kind of rolled over. And there, there might have also been, there's an argument and uh, you know, it's a roundabout way of doing deflation here. But um, look, all right, honey, we're going to get married on such and such a date. And we're going to start trying for a baby that the night of our wedding, right? Um, and we waited, waited for this day. Oh, the wedding is canceled uh, because of COVID. We'll have the wedding next summer. Okay. Well, I'm young. I, you know, I got time. I'll wait till next summer. We'll get married and then we'll have the baby. And so there was this delay 
um, on procreation. And we saw this in many, many countries during COVID. So there is an argument that maybe the deflation or the deflationists are exaggerating because we may get some respite on births in 22 or 23 as people finally they got hitched and now they're going to do it or they're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. They're not so freaked anymore. They're ready to bring some children into the world. So it goes. But the problem is, is you you take something like Spain or Greece, you're at 1.2 or 1.3 babies per woman and you need 2.06 to keep your population stable in the absence of immigration. And that marginal 0.7 or 0.8 children is a big move. This is, this is why China finds itself totally boxed in, has to make the populace believe it has a grip on um, their livelihoods by saying, oh, one child policy is now two child policy is now three child policy. But if nobody you know ever had more than zero or one kid, you're not really going to, you know. No, it takes multiple you know, generations to adjust yeah. your expectations there. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's like Jesse and I had, we had a number of kids, but we don't know anybody with any, any like large quantity of kids. And so there's that, and we came from small families. So we're, we're kind of oddballs, right? And if you don't know any neighbors that are having a bunch of kids, well then why it's not normal to you. And so I think that's one of the, the grips that, that confronts multiple cultures. This is, this is happening across Latin America, North America, Asian countries like Korea, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, it's happening everywhere. So that is a deflationary story, right? Um, other deflationary stories is, you know, look, maybe the cure for high commodity prices is high commodity prices. Earlier, we were talking about lumber. If lumber breaks the back of housing, let's just say, and now you have punk housing prices, well, then you don't necessarily need to march into your boss and demand a raise because prices aren't running away from you, Um Remember, this was this was you know, going back to what Rodrigo said, which I think was an underrated comment earlier about what caused that financial crisis in 08. We had commodities broke the middle class. The gasoline price broke the middle class. And it was that which led the bull market, led on the downside. It was all back Hold then. Hold was- on a second. I think that's a major causal leap there, dude. We also had Bernanke raising rates into a massive housing boom, right? Like, so everyone was massively over-levered on their mortgages. No, but I mean- And rates started going and, up. And he broke- We top-ticked which- top oil, though, in <laughs> July or August of, of 2008, right? Like, that's that's a major yeah, I spend. Just, I just don't- I mean, And, and you're paying, you're paying a zero-money-down mortgage? Well, guys, it's never one thing. Come on. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a culmination of these things. And just like, of course, of course this was all Jeff due to get Netflix. away with saying that, that oil <laughs> I got your back. broke the back of the, of the middle class oh, it in absolutely 2007. Did. <laughs> it absolutely did. It absolutely right. did. Let's not forget. Let's let them keep let's, going. Let's not forget that we had rolling um, food crises in, in the global south in that era, you had people in the streets in Egypt, for example, uh, because food prices were so runaway. We, we only really now have it at, at, at this juncture right now, food prices doing that. And the risk is that we get some sort of social unrest in some of the impoverished countries or just regular old street protests in the wealthy countries. Um, from that extent, that is the, the the risk that inflation ends up being that which cracks you. The important thing to note is that if, if you think that there's a change here from our disinflationary cycle into an inflationary period, 
then you just basically need to ask yourself, all right, what, what didn't work for the last five, 10 years? That, that's what I want to own, right? I mean, at the turn of the century, you needed to get long EFA, right? MSCI EFA. You needed to get long emerging and get the heck yep. out of the NASDAQ. And, you know, with, as we, as we ran, went into that crisis, you know, of 708, 09, you needed to get out of the banks, you need to get out of oil co and onward and start rotating into the stuff that was kind of cold heading into it. And here, I think, it's plain as day. We got it. We got something that's going on inside the markets internals. People are taking a bloodbath um, if they're in the wrong stuff. I mean, they've been, they've been right for years. I've been yep. one who's wrong. This is just classic market behavior, too, is how are you going to turn away from what's treated you so well for so long? Um, and and uh, it's it's by the dip. And uh, it has worked so, so well and conditioned you so well. We're literally the, the turkey farmer all over again. Yeah. Um, the turkey trusts well, the farmer the until, the, <laughs> until, until turkey dinner. Um, the farmers treated him well. And you, know then, what I, you know what I just thought of? All right. All right. Dig this, Mike. All right. In the, in the 1920s, we probably need to sign off in a second. So, I, And I, I just start, I get ideas. I start talking, guys. Let's no, go. I figure, remember, well, not remember, not remember the 1920s, but it was a story stock era, right? You wanted to be an RCA, right? And, and these companies that were going to be the next big thing. There was a technological think, revolution, the car, the radio. And then you have the, the 1930s, which we call the deflationary 30s. But home stake mining is that one that whenever somebody's talking about the 30s, especially gold bugs, I mean, I, you know, I go, go way back with the gold bugs. They love to tell you about how home stake did well. And that was in a, it was just a different market. Even though it was kind of deep, it was not kind of, it was a deflationary market. It was just new a new market and and are we in something different now where our cyclicals are holding up okay but the unprofitable tech is just in the in the tank and the 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 la- what do we say the iPad tape to the bicycle to make that reference four times in one call you just you just start to wonder is this fed tightening cycle and or this onset of inflation which is creating it going to give us this new market in which the leaders of yesteryear become the laggards and it's all that other stuff that you need to take a look at. Sign me up. That's my thesis. Yeah, I mean, and that would be a market that people can navigate, right, if you have some skills. The problem with 08 was that it was this exogenous credit event that affected everything. And we were at levels that were, we'd never seen before. Um, you know, corporates, banks are not at that nearly that near to that level, right? They're not. They're pretty well protected. We saw a lot of that during the COVID crisis. And the COVID was another external event that happened to us. So barring something like that. And both of them were V recoveries, by the way. I mean, 08 was 2007, like May 2007 to August of 08 was a good old fashioned bear market. And then when Lehman broke, that was the V recovery. That was V all the way down to October, November, and then recovery from, um, I think there was, yeah, and then March 2009, and then V recovery, same thing here. But this, barring an exogenous event, I mean, Markets are markets. There's going to be preferences. There's going to be shifts. We're going to see this rotation. We're going to see the market cap weight indices go back to the old-fashioned bear market, which is, you know, two or three months of drawdown, a little bit of a recovery, then another leg down, a little bit of recovery, another leg down. I wonder how the world's going to react to that for the buying the dip uh, people, mm-hmm. right? 
we, we so condition the whole generation the transition to passive and in, in that's, retirement that's the, accounts and passive becoming the de facto saving yeah. vehicle for an entire generation of retirees and that, that's the challenge like we're, we're the, the, in the 2000 2001 2002 2003 you know 01 0203 down 7 down 11 down 12 and taking money out those three years that that's that's a tough that's a tough thing for retirees to cope with but I do want, and then there's, then of course, there's the wealth effect on top of that, where, you know, uh, the, the Americans generally are over-invested in stocks or more invested in stocks than they've ever been. And, you know, with the depreciation of that wealth, they're going to, they're going to have uh, some sort of direct impact on their spending. But I want to come back to the sort of deflation or disinflation side, because I want to, I want to get back on that. So there's the birth rate. There's obviously mm. a lot of debt. What, what else is there, Jeff, that, that, that actually, Hey, we're going to get back to work. Omicron is actually a gift. Um, it, it spreads fast. It's less lethal. Um, it spreads through. We're back in a normal market in uh, in, um, in in normal economy with people going out in March. Supply chains fix themselves. I don't know. I'm, I'm making shit up here. <laughs> what, what else have you got to give us this sort of attenuation of of these of these prices and sort of that that side of the equation? Well, for one, you could have a uh, a productivity boom. That, that a lot of people hypothesize would be coming. And, and if you don't, you can you count your on uh, inflation persisting. So th- that is one of the things, right, is that maybe this era will be a productivity boom like the 1990s, but that might have just been the bull market talking, right? right. And, and, and the other thing about deflation is, is, it, is it because there's a crunch in liquidity? And you always do this post you know after the fact that some of the things are so obvious after uh the pain hits and it, just think about it this way so in february of 07 that little tiny thing nobody had heard i had never heard of it until it went under that new century financial right it was like a mortgage lender and well, that's not that's not good and then and then bear stern's hedge fund oh bear stern's hedge fund oh, this isn't good and it's it's one thing after the other until whoa now it's bear stern's right and then when you go back and you look last year on the speculative endeavors. Guys, help me here. When did SPACs officially implode? That was a good eight months ago or 10 months ago when those things peaked out, right? You had average down 80 plus percent. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the SPACs totally implode. Well, that's not good. And then, you know, the guy Bill Wang, right? Um, he he blew up and Greensill, right, over there in Britain. And and um Evergrande, I guess. Too. Yeah. Oh, and and the Chinese property developers. Okay. And and Chinese tech. I was going to say the DDIPO, the DDIPO, which was one of those. Wait, we have a failed IPO on a, on a right. huge corporation on the was it the NY? I assume it was the NYSE, not the Nasdaq. You know, they they floated it at eleven or twelve dollars. Stock went up to fourteen, and now it's something like five. This is the Uber of China. I'm like, oh, Spacs blew up. Property developers blew up. A couple frauds going on over there in Britain. Um, and then the IPO pipeline uh, in China and, and China itself, right? I mean, the PBOC had to ease policy, what, three or four sessions ago. So we Jay Powell's going to hike the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, they're all going to tighten. But by the way, don't tell anybody, China's easing policy. So you start mm-hmm. to wonder, is, is, is that Mike, is that something for, you know, I, I'm on an inflation thesis, but if, you, if you're thinking about what could catalyze this sucking sound on liquidity. Crypto. That, Crypto, like Bitcoin just closed below 37 today, below 37,000. 
right yeah. down nine and a half percent. That could so be a very a good that example. entire sector is like was like three trillion dollars in in you know in in wealth, right? And um, so speaking of wealth effect and margin calls and spillover effects into the broader economy. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if you just think about, um, I mean, I I. I I think it's a totally piping hot labor market, which is why I think inflation is being underestimated. But you could have a situation where I'm wrong. And these 10.6 million jobs in the United States that are on offer right now is they're on offer because everybody's minting profits and everybody's feeling good. Maybe it's 9.6 or 8.6 million jobs after the hiring manager takes a look at their at their 401k. And says, oh, you know what, I was going to hire five people for this department. I'm going to hire two or three now. Right. And that is on on net deflationary as well, Mike. So just, you know, I think that with markets, it's and always are, important to just think both sides of the equation yeah. to keep ourselves Agreed. honest, you know. But, but this is this beginning to hold yeah, on because yeah. I want to yeah. you raise another point that as you get going through this great resignation too, there is a uh, if we're going to have this lack of truckers, lack of labor, what happens? Well, you automate once you automate those jobs are gone forever. Yes. So all of a sudden you can now that again, I think that's part of maybe the productivity boom that you're talking about. And that's not immediate that that will take some time to, to manifest. But if you can't find or hire people, you will that that crisis will create the necessity to force you to change to say, well, I'm willing to accept some other automated approach to that thing. Well, look at us sitting and having Zoom calls. Look at yeah. look at the face to face meetings that are now all Zoom meetings. That's not as good as a face to face meeting. But it is a, a crisis necessity change in behavior that now has, you know, some impact on increasing productivity to some degree rather than and reducing travel time. And how else is that going to manifest through through the chain as we as we go forward? And how might that attenuate the, the labor shortage? Um, anyway, th- it's it's lots yeah, of no, but stuff this is, to speculate this is it, on, isn't it? But, like it's the yes and this goes all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, which is an inflationary decade is not commodities up every single year for 10 years. Mm. An inflationary decade is big booms and big busts. When commodity, the, the fix to a commodity uh, or high prices is high prices. And then we go down and the Fed breaks the back of inflation and we have this deflationary period. And all these things that we've been discussing, both on the inflationary and deflationary side, are always bumping up against each other. But it is going to be more volatile. I mean, it's, it, especially... Short term, you got the short term things like supply chain issues and monetary policy. You got the longer term things like uh, birth rates and and efficiencies, right? So this is again a, a more normal environment where things are moving around, and it's not just one theme all the time. I have to say that the the last decade has been one of the most difficult periods in history for for people who want to take responsible, you know, portfolios. Like it's because you really are making a bet on like five companies, right? Like if, if these five companies or this or this sector doesn't perform well, then your entire portfolio um, suffers. And, and if you're not substantially overweight in those five companies, then you're going to, you're going to massively underperform. And so there, it really is this weird, no win situation for, for those people who are, who are trying to be responsible and prudent. So, I mean, whatever, 
um, wishes or wishes, but I just, that type of environment where the vast majority of margin in the economy accrues to a narrower and narrower spectrum of institutions is just an extremely difficult environment to navigate. It also results in lots of other socially maligned externalities like inequality and, and um, you know, all of the, the secondary effects that derive from that, but also just from a, from an investment or a capital allocation standpoint, it's just a very difficult environment for prudent investors to navigate. So, you know, I would certainly welcome some return to the decades of, of, uh, to other decades that we've experienced in the last century or so. Interesting. So what you're saying is you want everybody who every 90% of the investors out there to fail. Take it, take away their number one winner. Would, so is that what you're saying? I would very much love to see prudence. They're going to change. Rewarded again and incentivized for. Don't worry, they'll at, be back into the bricks. At all levels of the economy, they'll be back <laughs> into the bricks. Don't worry. Well, speaking <laughs> of that, it's interesting to see that that emerging market equities are positive on the year. Right? Oh, because they haven't been doing so well, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. China, China does appear to have reached a, well, I don't know if it's permanent or, uh, you know, temporary, but it does seem to have bottom. So it's right now, recently, it's only China working. It's gold um, is working. Some of our EFA stuff, the, you know, the, 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 the super value, like the deeper value stuff um, has been working um, in recent weeks. But, you know, they, there, there's another issue, um, you know, inside the BRICS is that because this Ukrainian situation, we, we don't have time to get into it, I don't yeah. think, but. But Russian credit spreads are, are, are blowing out now, yeah. right? On, on yeah. account of you don't know if you're going to get some declaration that you need to maybe get these Russian bonds out of your portfolio. Um, now, you know, do it right. by Monday. And Richard commented on that as maybe a driver of what we're seeing in the gold market too, because gold definitely tends to be a bit of a barometer of geopolitical risk. And mm-hmm. this yeah. escalation on the uh, Ukrainian-Russian border is, is certainly a hot spot and needs to be monitored pretty actively. But yeah, this, this massive spike in Russian five-year CES is, is top of my uh, macro radar screen at the moment. Last time that happened was 1998, wasn't it? LTCM caused a whole lot of trouble. Yeah, they decided they were just going to default on their yeah. USD bonds. That was that so. uh, debt of 25% to GDP too, not the current set of debt circumstances we have been in. Yeah. You know, the only thing I'll say closing off here is is that I do think value is poised to do well here. And I got to say, my whole career, I've heard every investor possible say, oh, I'm a Warren Buffett style investor. I don't do anything else but that. And as a momentum manager, that always irked me. I've always kind of had disdain for value managers. And it's, it's to their credit that at this point, I actually feel sorry for them. But I also don't look forward to their pompous remarks in the next. Uh, it's the only thing I am really not looking forward to. You know what? Right? Values. So been I hope they take it in stride and they have humility going forward. <laughs> values been in the wilderness so long. Just yeah. let those of us who was who uh, are are acolytes just let us have a little bit of time. Just to <laughs> yeah, I can I can totally get behind the value guys here. I don't have that. It's been that, too long. That, that's <laughs> it at all. It's, anyway, it's, it's been too too long. 
Yeah. You don't understand. Like value was the only value was the growth of like value was the only thing. I only buy real companies that are Warren undervalued owns, and, and Warren Buffett's uh, anything largest else position is, is Apple. Apple's value. Yeah, but that's not, this is not the value guys that are, yeah, anyway. I know, I'm, I'm just saying, it's going to be a problem. It's, I'm going to have a hard time. I'm <laughs> happy for them. I just hope that they, they offer some humility in the coming decade. That's all. Ooh, in the coming decade. I yeah, thought it might be the coming few months. No, 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 no. I go big, baby. Value a for decade the entire value renaissance is what I heard. Well, that, that, it happens for a decade at a time, does it not? I mean, that's basically yeah, bottom well, bottom in 09, <laughs> tech stocks. You might running. get these, these three year massive surges, and then, you know, if you're not there for them. Yeah. Anyway, 2000 this has been to 2007. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, was it please. that long? Was it? <laughs> that's what it was. 2000 till 07. So it's been 14, 15 years now. Oh, yeah. I love it. Okay. Well, this has been All a right, lot yeah. of fun, actually. Um, yeah. So, Jeff, thanks so much for helping us to celebrate our first new rips back for 2022. And um, we look forward to having you on again. And uh, guys, if you haven't hit the like or subscribe button yet, please do so now so we can continue to entice magnificent celebrity guests like Jeff on, on the show again. And uh, we've got a great lineup coming for you in the next few months. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.